Good afternoon, and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Jack Waterman, coming to you live from Studio B and USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Nicholas Din. It's November 28th, 2022, our last Monday show of the semester. On today's show, it's Cyber Monday. Are people still shopping till they drop? Protests erupt in China in response to a deadly fire. Protesters blame extreme COVID protocols for the death. We want to be And Trojan football readies for the Pac-12 championship under the leadership of Lincoln Riley. But it's not surprising that he was able to to put together a much better team. All that and more from, from, from where we are. But first, these news headlines. The FIFA World Cup has wrapped up its second round of group stages, with every team now having played two matches, Portugal, France and Brazil are the first three teams to qualify for the round of 16. Brazil's striker, Richarlison de Andrade, has also scored what many believe is the goal of the tournament. He received the ball from Vinicius Jr. to then send it to the back of the net with a bicycle kick. Created the goal, running in, Richarlison! The host Qatar and the CONCACAF Cacafs Canada are the two first teams to be officially eliminated from the tournament. The remaining 28 national teams can all still qualify in the last round of the group stage before the knockouts start on Saturday, December 3rd. The world's largest active volcano, Hawaii's Mauna Loa, began erupting overnight for the first time in almost 40 years. The U.S. Geological Survey said the lava flow is not threatening communities, and no evacuations have been ordered, according to a tweet from the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. The National Weather Service in Honolulu said that the Big Island can expect an accumulation of ashfall of less than a quarter inch. The University of California academic worker strike enters its third week. The strikers continue to demand better pay and benefits. With 48,000 protesters across 10 UC schools, it marks the largest strike of higher education academic workers in the country's history. And finals are just one week away for UC students. While people across the country are hitting the Cyber Monday deals, Georgians are hitting the polls. It's the first day of early voting in the U.S. Senate runoff. Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock faces Republican challenger Herschel Walker in the state's third Senate runoff in just two years. Senator Warnock led Walker by over 30,000 votes in the November election, but neither candidate got over 50% of the vote. The last day to vote in the runoff is December 6th. Holiday sales season is in full swing. Some stores have opted out of doorbusters in favor of prolonged online sales. Convenience reigns supreme for many shoppers. Whether they're on the hunt for a new family flat screen TV or a special gift for that special someone, even if it's only at a 10% discount. Sophia Hammerlay spoke to USC students about how they get the best deals. Here's the story. Usually, Black Friday conjures images of crowded stores, long lines, and fights over coveted merchandise. But as online shopping takes the lead, that image is changing. The COVID-19 pandemic launched online sales revenue to record levels, but the growth of online shopping appears to be a permanent change. 
Online shopping revenue this past Friday reached $9.2 billion, surpassing the record set in 2020. And today's revenue from Cyber Monday is projected to be a record $11.2 billion, according to Adobe Analytics. This growth is on par with consumer preferences. Omar Saladin, a junior studying aerospace engineering at USC, says online shopping is preferable to waiting in long lines at stores. I used to do Black Friday and actually like wait out in line and do all that stuff. And then I was just like, eventually I, I got over it. Too much time, big waste. Yeah, and I kind of enjoyed having dinner with my family over spending the entire night out in front of Target. Not a big fan. Sasha Hussein is a junior majoring in health and human science. She went shopping in person on Black Friday, but admitted that the cost of transportation makes online shopping more accessible. I got one thing from Lululemon, and then we came back. Like, we only bought one thing total from the both of us, and we just Ubered back. We spent more money on the Uber than actually shopping. I think online shopping can be convenient because you don't have to go in person, and you don't have to pay for an Uber, and it takes less time. Despite online shopping's undisputed rise in popularity, it retains certain downsides. Liana Villarreal, a junior majoring in journalism, said it's less favorable to buy clothes online. Because it's convenient and I can stay in bed and shop, um, but the only downside of that is like I can't really order most things because I don't know if it'll fit and I have to return it and it's a whole thing. When individuals do choose to shop online, many turn to the online shopping giant Amazon. Despite consumer concerns over the company's environmental and labor practices, Amazon continues to top charts as the most visited online shopping website in the U.S. One of these people is Anthony Slade, a junior studying journalism. I do feel a little guilty, but I would say Amazon's probably my number one just because it's so convenient and they have everything. While this year's projected revenue is on par with pre-pandemic levels, the rate of growth has actually slowed. In the three years prior to the pandemic, there was a consistent 20% growth rate in Black Friday online sales revenue from year to year. This year's Black Friday revenue increased by only 2.4% from 2021. Similarly, the projected revenue for Cyber Monday is only 5% greater than last year. This slowed growth could be due to increased inflation. There is greater hesitancy to spend money, Omar Saladin explains. I know a lot of people are trying to uh, hold on to their money kind of because of inflation and then kind of fearing a recession. This is reflected in consumer mindsets, including that of Liana Villarreal. I haven't really shopped as much as I have in the past just because everything's more expensive. Christopher Holmes-Smith is a USC Annenberg professor and directs the Media Economics and Entrepreneurship Program. He explained why Americans are still spending this year despite these concerns. Prior to the pandemic, the labor market was in a historically strong standpoint. And we saw trillions of dollars flood into the economy during, um, during the pandemic. And all of that money has not yet been exhausted. People still have money to spend. Smith also said that these spending holidays have significant cultural power to motivate spending. I still think that Black Friday and Cyber Monday still send behavioral signals to the average consumer. It still represents kind of like the true beginning of the holiday shopping season. There's still a few hours left this Cyber Monday to snag a holiday gift for family and friends, or for yourself. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sophia Hammerly. Protests in China over strict zero-COVID policies erupted across the country after a deadly apartment fire. Citizens say COVID protocols prevented residents from escaping and receiving assistance, 
Vigils are happening not only across China, but across the U.S. as people gather and mourn in solidarity. Sullivan Barthel has the story. Large-scale protests have broken out in cities across China following an apartment fire last Friday, which killed 10 people and injured another nine. Chinese commentators shared footage and reports of the fire in Urumqi on social media, infuriating citizens who said that COVID restrictions had impacted the rescue and stopped residents from escaping the building. Protesters in Shanghai and Urumqi have called for the government to lift lockdowns and restrictions on the press, and have even called for China's leader, Xi Jinping, to step down. These protests are the latest flare-up of widespread frustration about the country's stringent zero-COVID measures. Jonathan Aronson, professor of communication at USC Annenberg and international relations at USC Dornsife, said that China's zero-tolerance COVID policies were a political and economic decision. It was incredibly successful on one level, which is that Chinese deaths from COVID have been much, much lower than anywhere else of a similar size and scale. Uh, it has been less successful in that people are fed up. Uh, they do get the news that around the world there have been much less restrictive uh, policies. The protests represent the biggest challenge to the government's power since Xi Jinping took office a decade ago. Outbursts like these have not been seen in mainland China since the pro-democracy Tiananmen Square protests of 1989, which were crushed by the Chinese army. Aronson says that although it's rare for Chinese citizens to question their president, our digital world makes it easier to do so. In an age of the internet, it's more frequent. It's always been okay to criticize at the local level. What happens is when you get up to the polar bear level, when you get up to the rulers uh, sitting in Beijing, and particularly to Xi, that's what's new. And that's what's not been tolerated before. So far, protesters have been met with tear gas, and Chinese social media sites have been scrubbed of any anti-government messaging. On Sunday afternoon, a demonstration at Tsinghua University in Beijing drew a crowd of hundreds of students. Protesters noted that the gathering was not immediately shut down by police. Although Aronson thinks that COVID restrictions in China may ease over time, he is less optimistic that the government will change their policy because of protests. Over time, they will recalculate. Over time, there will be some relaxation. I do not expect the Chinese government to say, oh, we've suddenly seen the light. We are now going to make it easier because you've asked us to. The Chinese government has blamed, quote, forces with ulterior motives for connecting the Xinjiang fire to COVID protocols. The government has said that it is reluctant to ease restrictions in the interest of stopping public transmission. China has a very low vaccination rate, as it has refused to offer any mRNA vaccines developed by Western countries. For Annenberg News, I'm Sullivan Barthel. I'm Jack Waterman. We're glad you're with us for From Where We Are. And I'm Nicholas Lin. It's 11 minutes past the hour. Coming up, USC students react to this year's Trojan football success and an interview with Annenberg Media's photo editor, Yannick Peter-Hans, on covering protests.
The USC Trojans defeated Notre Dame Fighting Irish 38-27 in the season finale this past Saturday. Now they are headed to Las Vegas this Friday where they will play the Utah Utes for the Pac-12 Championship as Trojan fever amongst fans is at an all-time high. Yeah, it is. Empty backfield. Williams steps up and now flips it to a man. And the catch is made by Taj Washington. Touchdown, USC. Trojans right down the field to strike first. It was a party at the Coliseum Saturday night. Over 70,000 fans packed the stadium, jumping up and down and cheering as USC finished the season 11-1. This is a complete 180 after finishing 4-8 a year ago. Many attribute USC's success this year to head coach Lincoln Riley, who was hired last fall after the season. One of these people is USC accounting sophomore Alex Mainville. He gives his reaction on what Riley has accomplished this year. No, I didn't expect him to turn the program around so quickly. I thought it was going to be uh, something that would take like three or four years, maybe by the time I was a senior, but uh, obviously, yeah, it took uh, just one season. Riley had great success in Oklahoma with an overall record of 55-10 and 10 before coming to USC. Director of Annenberg's Institute of Sports Media and Society, Daniel Durbin, explained how he was able to continue his success here. Yes, I think I think you could see him turning around the team and potentially getting it in the top 10. Getting it into the top four might be a bit of a surprise, especially given the, the continued prejudice against Pac-12 teams. But it's not surprising that he was able to, to put together a much better team. I mean, the big tip-off that he was going to be able to do so was the fact that he was able to bring over so many players from Oklahoma. The portal helped him immensely in that. He was essentially able to pick and choose the best players from USC and the best players from Oklahoma and put them together and create kind of a hybrid team that obviously was going to be better than last year's USC team. The turnaround has brought a lot of excitement back to football. Here's Mainville again on what this year has meant. The experience was... um very good this year because I remember last year people were showing up to the games and then kind of just leaving after like a quarter or two, especially once USC started losing a lot, like nobody wanted to go to the games and it was boring and it sucked. And then this year they're winning like every single game and it's very fun and I'm even staying till the end of the fourth quarter for a lot of these games. So uh, I think it's a lot better than it was last year. For the first time in five years, USC has made it back in the top 10 in AP rankings, being placed at number four currently. Students now have more to celebrate and look forward to with this success. Neuroscience sophomore Abel Shanta feels the hype for this team and has been enticed to go to the Pac-12 championship in Las Vegas. Probably I will go with, with, a, with my friend group and we were thinking about connecting it with a road trip, so we will probably drive there. Professor Durbin agrees that the future is bright for USC as the Trojans get ready to move to the Big Ten. So the good news is is that USC, number one, will have what will be perceived as a higher level of competition, a better level of competition. So it'll make it easier should USC be successful. It'll make it easier to get higher rankings uh, for the uh, championship. Number two, the games will be much more visible. What's more is that Ohio State and LSU, two teams ranked higher than USC, both lost Saturday, potentially allowing USC to get in the college football playoffs. We'll have to wait for the CFP rankings, which come out tomorrow at 4 p.m. For Annenberg Media, I'm Eric Yeh.
Subjects like protests and demonstrations are an integral part of any newsroom, as these often lead to the most impactful stories. However, anyone covering these stories must take extreme care with the manner in which they present information to the public. This covers everything from the words we read, the voices we hear, and even the pictures we see. Today, we are sitting down with USC Annenberg photo desk editor Yannick Peterhans to discuss good practices when it comes to taking and releasing photos about sensitive events. Yannick, how are you doing today? Good, good, good. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining us. Um, so yeah, we want to first ask you, why is this such an important topic? Why is this something um, that you think more people need to know about in terms of covering these sensitive events through photos? So I think at the end of the day, when you're talking about protests, you're talking about vulnerable communities. And when you're photographing these communities, understanding that these people are putting themselves at risk mm -hmm. by going out and protesting should guide any of your photographs that you end up taking. Mm -hmm. So you see this especially in China, right? Like people are putting themselves at risk going outside and, and protesting against the government. So in your own photographs, you really have to be cognizant about who you're framing and who you're putting in and who eventually gets published. Yeah. And can you speak on that a little bit more in terms of, um, you know, the practices, the specific practices that are important, the things you have to be cognizant of when you're taking these pictures? Sure. So, it, you know, a lot goes into this from obviously when you're in a protest, you're in a place that also endangers your own safety. Mm -hmm. So when you're photographing people, you have to realize that whoever you put in your frame is sort of putting themselves out there in the public eye. But also these people are you know, they become a spokesman of, of some sorts when they're in the frame. So as you are sort of in these what can be potentially dangerous situations, you sort of have to balance that with the fact that you are photographing these vulnerable people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when it comes to protests, these are really symbolic actions. They're demonstrations mm -hmm. that, and these people are going out of their way to really fight for a message and get things that they want to see done. When you're looking to take a picture, Yannick, how do you choose what and what not to put in your frame to really convey that message that these protesters really want to create that action? So I think the first part with that choice comes as actually speaking to the protesters. I will often ask for, I mean, you usually should ask for permission whenever you take someone's photo. And so that sort of guides your step one. And then when things get too chaotic or too out of hand, um, you just kind of got to take it one step at a time on who you're framing in. And a lot of the time that ends up being either the leader of a protest or someone that's in the front, that's up, you know, in the middle of the action. And that will end up being your subject. But really staying close and personal with the subject and asking and really getting that permission before maybe everything mm -hmm. goes, you know, awry with the police or whatever ends up happening, which should guide any of your coverage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much um, for your time. Such an important subject. Um, and, and, you know, keep, keep going out there and doing, doing the good work that you are. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having so, me. Appreciate it. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Valeria Diaz and Meredith McCabe produced today's show. And Derek Renfro composed our theme music. We are also streaming live on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Annenberg Radio. I'm Jack Waterman. And I'm Nicholas Din. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From, From Where, Where We, we are. are. Thanks for tuning in on Mondays. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll see you next year. See you next semester. Bye. Thank you.